word to us tonight. Father, we again come to you another week, another night, and we just ask that your favor, your grace will be upon us as a church and upon us as individuals, that you would speak to us and you would impart truth to our lives that we can use to be more like the way you want us to be. Thank you for it. We rebuke any effort the devil may have to hinder the word coming forward. We receive it as done in Jesus' name. Amen. Tonight, the topic I would like to speak about, or the subject I'd like to speak about tonight, as we come together as a body of believers, I was thinking about that we come together and hear the word for about an hour each message. So two hours a week, 168 hours are in a week. So two out of those 168. Tonight, I want us to consider the topic that every one of us faces every day, and we will, from now until we leave this earth, we will contend with sin. Sin's not a, a subject that's fun to talk about or, or people enjoy, but it's, it's something that's necessary because it's something that we are confronted with all the time. And this Bible that we hold in our laps, it it's can, it speaks about sin from the front to the very back and all the way in between, man and sin. And as if I was to ask you tonight, how would you define sin? Well, it would be some different answers, but it would very, be very similar as well. It would be, well, it's rebellion against God. It's rebellion against his word and his ways. Or it could be disobedience because to him who knows to do good and doeth it not to him, it's sin. Or it could be some sort of wickedness, something that we do. Man has a sinful nature. That's what he's born with. And so, therefore, wickedness is in his heart. And so we would define sin in some similar way like that. And we would also say that Sin started with Adam, or like the old-timers that sit around on, the, on, on their porches and talk about how bad the world's gotten, and somebody will joke, if it wasn't for that woman, you know, in the garden, she hadn't listened to the serpent, there would be no sin. But we know that's not true, because sin did not originate with Eve, because as Eve was there in the garden, she was tempted by Satan through the serpent. So Satan had already fallen. And it says in 1 John 3, 8, it says, From the beginning, Satan has sinned. And it also says, For this purpose was the Son of God manifest, to destroy the works of the evil one. Amen? And so sin already existed in the beginning. But the Bible says through one man sin entered the world. And that was into the human race. I'm going to read this for you. In Romans 5, in verse 12, it says, Therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world, and death through sin, and thus death spread to all men, because all had sinned. And as it spread from Adam, it doesn't take long to see his son was sinful. As we read about being our brother's keeper, Cain 
as the verse before he killed Abel. You all remember that famous verse. Let me read it to you. It's uh, in Genesis 4. God said, And if you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin lies at the door and its desires for you, but you should rule over it. And that scripture applied to Cain, and it applied to every man after Cain, including you and I. And that's something that we will deal with for the rest of our life. So as we look at tonight, I'm not wanting to discuss necessarily the fall of man and how sin entered man and and how man has been sinful since then. I'd like us to look at tonight sin and the believer or sin in God's chosen people. Because as we look through the Old Testament, we see God's chosen people and how sin came into their midst and how God saw that. And then as we get into the New Testament, we look at how we as believers, how sin can affect us as well and how sin is something we have to contend with. I want us to turn to an old story in the Bible and I want us to read Joshua 7. I'd like to title the message tonight, Sin in the Camp. Sin in the Camp. And let's read as we we open up the Bible to Joshua 7. And before we do, let me give you just a, a bit of a background so we're not jumping into the middle of the story. If you remember the Israelites, the Israelites came into the Promised Land and they came to the Jordan River. The Bible says they camped there for three days. And the Jordan River was swelling out of its banks. And if you can imagine coming to a river that has had a lot of rain and it's overflowing, this is a big problem. When you start talking about men, women, children, cattle, possessions, we've got to go over there. That's a big problem. And you all remember the story well how uh, they took the Ark of the Covenant and upon God's instruction they went down and they entered into the water, and when the priest's feet hit the water, the Bible says that water began to pile up, upstream, for a long distance. It piled up, and then it said water failed going downstream. The water was cut off, and the people saw that there was dry ground, and they started across the river. The entire nation of Israel, they started across on dry ground. And then as Joshua commanded them, he said, Take twelve stones from the center near where the Ark of the Covenant stood, because they stood in the center of the river with the Ark. He said, take the twelve stones for a memorial. And so one stone for each of the tribes, they took twelve stones and they hauled them out of the river and they took them to where they camped to make a memorial. And they went to a place called Gilgal. And if I'm not pronouncing that right, it's okay because you all don't know how to pronounce it either. So they went to this place, and that's where they camped. And it was about two miles from Jericho. And at this place, when they come there, they've just come through the water, and the priests followed out, and the waters continued over. They went back where they were and overflowed the banks. And the people kept the Passover at that point. And it was a celebration as they celebrated how God had delivered them out of Egypt all those years ago and how he commanded them to keep the Passover. And from all I can tell, that was the first time they had kept the Passover all the way back to Mount Sinai 
That may not be exactly correct, but that's that's as close as I can find it. And so it was the first time it was a big deal. And they did this right there in Gilgal. It was two miles from, from Jericho. And then it talks about how Joshua, as he went near Jericho, he saw a man. And he said the man, it says the man had his sword drawn. And Joshua went near to him and said, Are you with us or are you against us? And the man answered and said, I am the commander, the captain of the host of the Lord, and I now come. And they said Joshua fell on his face. He had that encounter with an angel. And so all these things are going for the, for the nation of Israel. They've crossed over. God is with them. And now they're facing Jericho. And as you look at the, the history of Jericho, it was one of the strongest cities that they would ever face. It had walls 25 foot high in some places, 20 foot thick. And if you look at or think about what we had for warfare, weapons to try to attack such a place, it was pretty much impossible for an army to be able to penetrate those walls. It was considered a symbol of strength in all the area, Jericho. And that's what they were faced with as they went forward. And God gave the instruction, and, and I'm telling you things you already know, but I'm, I'm leading up to, to our message tonight. God gave them instruction. He said, march around the city. Don't say a word. They marched around it, back to camp. The next day, march around the city. This was God's way. And then as they got to the seventh day, and he told them to march around seven times, and when you hear the the ram's horn, and how many times we hear our parents tell us this story growing up? The ram's horn, and then everybody's going to shout, and the walls will come down. But the part that gets lost in that story is there was one more commandment. There was one more thing. And that was, if you look in chapter 6, and you go to verse 17, God said, and the city shall be doomed by the Lord to destruction, it and all who are in it. Only Rahab the harlot shall live, she and all who are with her in her house, because she hid the messengers that we sent. But you, by all means, abstain from the accursed things, lest you become accursed when you take of the accursed things, and you make the camp of Israel a curse and trouble it. There was only one command that they had. Utterly destroy it and touch nothing that was accursed. And the word accursed means something that is dedicated or appointed or devoted to destruction. And it's important to note that that's God's decision. That's not for us to decide what is accursed. It was his word and his decision, and it was his commandment. Don't take of the accursed things. So we all know it was a great victory. They shouted and all the walls fell. Straightway every man went. And it was a great victory, and it put fear into all those that are around. Now we come to chapter 7. I want to read this through. But the children of Israel committed a trespass regarding their cursed things. For Achan, the son of Carmi, the son of Zabdi, the son of Zerah, of the tribe of Judah, took of the accursed things. So the anger of the Lord burned against the children of Israel. Now Joshua sent men of Jericho to Ai, which is beside Beth-Avon, on the east side of Bethel, and spoke to them, saying, Go up and spy out the country. 
So the men went up and spied out Ai. And they returned to Joshua and said to him, Do not let all the people go up, but just let about two or three thousand men go up and attack Ai. Do not weary all the people there, for the people of Ai are few. So about three thousand men went up from there, from the people. But they fled before the men of Ai. And the men of Ai struck down about 36 men. And they chased them from before the gate as far as Shabarium and struck them down on the descent. Therefore the hearts of the people melted and became like water. Then Joshua tore his clothes and fell to the earth on his face before the ark of the Lord until evening. He and the elders of Israel, and they put dust on their heads. And Joshua said, Alas, Lord God, why have you brought us, brought this people over the Jordan at all? to deliver us into the hand of the Amorites to destroy us. Although we have been content and dwelt on the other side of the Jordan. O Lord, what shall I say when Israel turns its back before its enemies? For the Canaanites and all the inhabitants of the land will hear it, surround us, cut off our name from the earth. Then what will you do for your great name? Then the Lord said to Joshua, Get up. Why do you lay thus on your face? Israel has sinned. And they have also transgressed my covenant, which I commanded them. For they have taken some of the accursed things, and they have both stolen and deceived, and they have also put it among their own stuff. Therefore the children of Israel could not stand before their enemies, but turned their backs before their enemies, because they had become doomed to destruction. Neither will I be with you any more, unless you destroy the accursed thing from among you. Get up, sanctify the people, and say, Sanctify yourselves for tomorrow, because thus says the Lord God of Israel, There is an accursed thing in your midst, O Israel. You cannot stand before your enemies until you take away the accursed thing from among you. In the morning, therefore, you shall be brought according to your tribes. It will be that the tribe which the Lord takes shall shall come according to families, and the family which the Lord takes shall come by households, and the household which the Lord takes shall come by man by man then it shall be that that he who is taken with the accursed thing shall be burned with fire he and all that he has because he has transgressed the covenant of the lord and because he has done a disgraceful thing in israel so joshua rose early in the morning and brought israel by their tribes and the tribe of judah was taken he brought the clan of judah and he took the family of the zerites and he brought the family of the Zerites man by man, and Zabdiel was taken. Then he brought his household man by man, and Achan, the son of Carmel, the son of Zabbi, the son of Zerah, the tribe of Judah, was taken. Now Joshua said to Achan, My son, I beg you, give glory to the Lord God of Israel and make confession to him, and tell me now what you have done. Do not hide it from me. And Achan Answered Joshua and says, Indeed, I have sinned against the Lord of Israel, and this is what I have done. I saw among the spoils a beautiful Babylonian garment, 200 shekels of silver, and a wedge of gold weighing 50 shekels. I coveted them and took them, and there they are, hidden in the earth in the midst of my tent, with the silver under it. So Joshua sent messengers, and they ran to the tent, and there it was, hidden in the tent, with the silver under it. And they took took them from the midst of the tent and brought them to Joshua and to all, of Israel, all the children of Israel and laid them out before them. And Joshua and all, the, and all Israel with him took Achan, the son of Zerah, the silver, the garments, the wedge of gold, his sons, his daughters, his oxen, his donkeys, his sheep, and his tent, and all that he had. And he brought them to the valley of Anchor. And Joshua said, 
Why have you troubled us? The Lord will trouble you this day. So all Israel stoned him with stones, and they burned them with fire after they had stoned them with stones. They raised over him a great heap of stones, still there to this day. So the Lord turned from the fierceness of his anger. Therefore the name of the place has been called the Valley of Acre to this day. And as we read that, it's it's some somewhat difficult to understand you we think man that's that's really harsh that's really tough and if we go to verse 1 and we start through this after this great victory in Jericho you think about the people they could not be more confident they could not be more of faith more full of faith that God was with them and when we talk about Achan you know he wasn't a poor man he took that stuff, but he wasn't poor because it talks about all his possessions. It talks about his donkeys and, and his livestock and his possessions. He was, he was from a good family. He, had, he wasn't in a, a situation of desperation. He was just tempted. He was tempted as he went up into, the, into, the, into, the, into Jericho. You know, he also was a man who, if you think about it, he walked over the Jordan on dry ground. He ate manna from the sky. He experienced these things. He was there when Jericho fell, obviously, and went right up in there. <clears throat> this was not a man that did not understand the provision of God. He didn't under, he, he's not a man that didn't understand the power of God. He could see that. He had experienced it. Yet when he was faced with a temptation, he gave in. And I want us to continue to read as we go through uh, through this. I want to make a few points. You know, when you come to, to verse 2 and verse 3, and, and when Joshua sent out the men uh, to scout out the land, it says as you go on through the, the chapter of Joshua that there were 12,000 people in the city of Ai. Now that was people in all, not just men. But the men came back to Joshua and said, we only need two or 3,000. We can handle them with that. So there was, a, there was a, real, a real confidence that these people were living by. And they said, we only need that many. Yet they only need that many if the Lord's with them. And they were soon to find out when the Lord was not with them, they needed a whole lot more than they had. And as they went into there, in verse 4 and 5, it talks about, uh, about 3,000 men went up and they fled. And it talks about how they were killed, not in battle, not in a hand-to-hand and just happened to get killed. They were killed running. They were struck down on the descent. This was something that just didn't happen to the children of Israel. They had just went up into Jericho. Now they're running and being killed from behind. And there was a lot of questions. And there's a lot of questions anytime there is defeat. That includes then and it includes now. There's a lot of questions and a lot of wondering why. Because till now the people did not understand. They didn't know what had happened. And as it comes down to they came and told Joshua and how he tore his clothes and he fell to the earth and he prays to God. I can't help when I see that to think about how that a leader a leader, whenever his, the people that God has placed in front of him, his calling, his ministry, 
and he's placed in front of them. I can't help but think about how that God gives him a heart for those people. And as we read that, he fell on his face till evening time, put dust on his head. He was distraught. And almost all leaders of the Bible, if you look at it, they they led the people a hundred percent. They led them with all their heart. You take like Nehemiah. Remember the story of Nehemiah whenever he went back to Jerusalem and the walls were down. He was going to build the walls back. And as they did that, he began to realize that a lot of the people had given their daughters and sons an intermarriage and how that just angered him to think of that. And it says he took some of them by the hair, you know, and he struck some of them and he made them, he made them promise not to do that anymore because he did it with a lot of zeal and he did it with his heart because I believe a leader does that. And, and you know, I was thinking while I was studying this, do you all remember our pastor, Tom Hamilton, whenever he would get up here and preach? You remember how sometimes he would really get into his message and then he would say, I don't know why I'm hollering. But I know why he hollered. Because if you think about it, God had given him a calling in a ministry with us. And he gave him a love for us. And when you love somebody, you put your heart into it. And when you put your heart into it, the rest of your feelings and your emotions and your thoughts and your desires follow your heart. And that's what a leader is about. A leader is not just someone who has different skills. It's a man that God has placed a love for people, particular people, in front of him in his lifetime to lead. And that is, an, that is one of the most important characteristics of a leader is that he has a love for the people. Because when he does, then he's going to give his heart and his feelings and his emotions and everything in his life 100% for the well-being and the, and, and the progress and the deliverance of these particular people. That's what it means to be a leader. And as we read through that, and when Joshua, he had a good example of that, we have to give an account of people's souls. And he knew that. And he talks about Moses was the same way. All these leaders in the Bible, think about that. Think about that whenever we say, why does a, a particular leader do this? Or why does he do that? Why doesn't he do it a different way? Think about the fact that we may not be able to completely understand that because he is doing it with all of his heart and he's doing the best way he knows. So as we look at, at being a leader um, to be effective, all leaders had one thing in common, I believe. All leaders of the Bible, all leaders... Every leader today, there is one truth that is in common. They all know if they're going to be effective, God has to be with them. If God is not with them and God is not with their group, then nothing is possible to do right. That's true then. It's true now. It's true in our church right here. If God is not with us, if God doesn't go with us, he is not in our midst, any good that we will accomplish in the future is not possible because we have to know 
that God is with us, just like in our story where God was not. And as we go into uh, verse, after he goes through there in verse 10, so the Lord said to Joshua, Get up, why do you lie thus on your face? Israel has sinned, for they have also transgressed my covenant, which I commanded them. For they have even taken some of the accursed things, and they have both stolen and deceived, and they have also put it among their own stuff. Folks, think about how easy it is for us today to mix a little bit of the accursed things that we deal with into our Christian lives. It's so easy just to mix it in there. And if we talk about the accursed things by definition, accursed being something that is destined or devoted to or set aside to destruction by God. And there's so many things in our life on a daily basis when we talk about sin being in the camp. There's so many things that we can just take a little because our logic says a little bit won't hurt. And if we don't do this very often, it won't matter. But as we read in this story, it did matter. One man took a little. And as we look at that, I want us to consider, what about as we look into the world, what about the music? We talk about music. And maybe we get into our vehicles and we have, if we still have radios with presets, what if we have two of them that are Christian and then the rest are something from the past? And we find ourselves enjoying that a little more maybe than than the Christian music. Or what I think is worse is when we add the same sound and the same ideas and the same look and put the name of God on it. Could that be bringing part of the accursed thing into the camp? Because if that music drives people to do a lot of things, a lot of wickedness, nothing that glorifies God, then there is music that is accursed. And if we bring some of that into us, into our lives, it can have an influence. What about the Internet? You see, we're all faced with temptations our whole life. Can we take a little bit of the accursed thing that's available on the Internet into our lives and not be affected? What about drugs? Everybody says, oh, that's good. I'm not into drugs. What about alcohol? What about anything that the devil uses that is a stronghold to destroy people's lives? It could be gambling. It's these things that as they... If you look at the, the big picture of it, these things are accursed things. They take people and they destroy them. I know friends that have lost their farms because they gamble. Alcohol, that's simple enough. Drugs. But as Christians, how can we dabble just a little bit in the accursed things? Because how easy is it to mix it into our Christian life? I'm talking to myself and anybody that feels conviction tonight. Or what about our relationships? What about especially the, the young younger crowd in here going to school, involved in different situations? What is a little bit of a bad, a bad relationship? How is that going to really hurt? I want us to turn to a scripture. I want us to turn to Ephesians 5. 
I want us to consider as, as born-again Christians walking through this earth dealing with the temptation of sin. In Ephesians 5, in verse 8, I'm sorry. I'm in Galatians. Ephesians 5, verse 8 says, For you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children in the light. For the fruit of the Spirit in all goodness, righteousness, and truth, finding out what is acceptable to the Lord, and have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather expose them. I don't know how... how you all feel about it, but I know it's a very easy thing to begin to have fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness. And it can become sin. And when it's sin, we bring it into our camps. I want us to consider it tonight. There is a very common uh, thought process. I hear it regularly. Something that we deal with as a, a, in our modern 2015 culture. And that is that we are independent. We have our own convictions. It's private. It's nobody's business. Not hurting anybody. So why is it any big deal? I want to tell you that if you live by a set of standards that is according to God's word, then those are called convictions. But if you live according to a set of standards that are opinions, that are not of God's Word, all they are is opinions. And so if we're living our life, when we deal with and we look at things in, that we deal with on a, a daily basis, if we decide based on our opinion whether that is right or that is bad for me or something I should not do, then we are living our life based on opinions. But if we go to God's Word and say, what does it say about it? Then we have convictions. And we have got to live with convictions. Because every day of our life, we live by one or the other. We live by convictions or we live by opinions. But be sure of one thing. We are living by one set or the other of those rules. And if we're living by opinions, then all of a sudden... We go into our life and we wonder, why is things so dry? Why are things, why am I so discouraged? It must be the church. I'm missing something in my life. Something's not right. What, what can I do to find God's presence back in my life? Peter preached a sermon in Acts, and it says it better than I could ever imagine it being said. I want to read it to you in Acts 3. In Acts 3, as Peter was preaching, because all of us at some point in our life, we feel that. We feel that emptiness and that dryness that we've somehow drifted. And in Acts 3, in verse 19... Peter said, Repent, which implies their sin. Repent, therefore, and be converted, that your sins may be blotted out, so that times of refreshing may come from the presence 
of the Lord. And the word converted very simply means to turn about, to reverse. And the word refreshing means revival. It means literally the recovery of breath. I don't know about you, but I want revival and I want recovery of breath. I want to know, and that comes, it says, from the presence of the Lord. And if in our life, if there is some some reason we feel like it's not there, some reason we feel dry, instead of us always looking outside of ourselves and find the reasons, maybe we ought to look in the mirror and say, there's sin in the camp. There's sin. Because it says right there, repent and be converted, which implies there is sin. Repent and be converted. That times of refreshing can come from the presence of the Lord. And I receive that for myself and everybody here at Shelbyville Christian Assembly. In Jesus' name, everybody said, Amen. So as we go back to our story, in Joshua 7, we're now up to verse um, 12 through 13. And it, we talk about, it talks about how that they could not stand before their enemies. And he said, I will not be with you anymore because you have not destroyed the accursed thing from amongst you. And then he says, sanctify yourself and remove the accursed thing. See, we live in a day where everything, every behavior, any way that we want to live is accepted. That, you know, like when, when we were in, when Daisy and I were in Guatemala, I remember one particular question that I never forgot. I asked a man, I said, do you believe in God? And he said, which God? He was genuinely asking a question. Because you see, in a lot of other countries, there are many gods. God of the volcano, sun god. Uh, then there's the god the, that the Catholics discuss. Then there's whoever else it may be. But here in America, we've been blessed with, when you say, do you believe in God? Oh, I, I know which God you're talking about. But I'm going to tell you tonight that there is a created God by our culture that is like a human. And if you don't believe me, you turn on the radio. You listen to comments from people that are churchgoers. And when they discuss God, they discuss God on human terms. Well, I was talking to God the other day, or, you know, and then I told God, I tell you what, and, and then you turn on the radio and it talks about uh, looking into God's face and, and, and conversing and all these things, that it is a stretch. I would ask, which God are you serving? Because the God in our story is the same true God today. He never changes. It's only our culture that creates a God just the same way as people created idols in the old days because it suited them better. And if you create an idol and you go to that idol and you worship it, you can make it any way you want. And that is what has happened in our society. There is a God that has been created that is a humanistic God that just accepts everything. And we can go out and we can make decisions any way we want. We can be, we can have sin. We can bury things in the, in the tent of our life. 
We can pile up all the accursed things and he'll accept it. I'm going to tell you it's a lie. It's serving an idol. And it's not based on scripture. And it's based on opinions. And I think that there's a danger in that. And tomorrow, and as we go forward, I want us to consider when we think about God and we hear God, the word God talked about on our radios or on people that we meet, people that we know, I want us to think about, is that the same God of the Bible? Because all these things were written for our learning so that we would understand the true God. And God does not change. And as we continue to go through here, I want us to consider the word iniquity. Iniquity. We all have an idea of what iniquity means. I want us to turn, if you don't mind, to Isaiah 59. In Isaiah 59, in verse 1, it says, Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened, that it cannot save, nor his ear heavy, that it cannot hear. But your iniquities have separated you from your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you, so that he will not hear. For your hands are defiled with blood, and your fingers with iniquity. Your lips have spoken lies, and your tongue muttered perversity. No one calls for justice. No one pleads for truth. They trust in empty words and speak lies. They conceive evil and they bring forth iniquity. Before I come and speak any time before, before a group of people or, or stand behind a pulpit, the importance of understanding a scripture to the absolute best I can is one of the most important things. And looking at words and translations to me has been a real eye-opener. Because some things that I have looked at and believed it always to mean a particular thing can actually mean more or it could mean a little bit differently. And the word iniquity, as it's translated into our Bibles, it comes from two different Hebrew words. They're similar, but they have a slightly different meaning. And it's a real blessing to see this. I want to try to explain this to you. As we look in, in this chapter in 59 as it goes down and says but your iniquities have separated you from your god and your sins have hidden his face from you in verse 3 and your fingers with iniquity your hands are defiled with blood and your fingers with iniquity as it talks about that there is iniquity that is that is an action okay it can be an action like a wickedness or a perversion, or a wrong deed. The worst thing a man does to do, he commits iniquity. It is an act. There's one word that means that. And then there's another word that's translated iniquity that that implies a condition. It could be idolatry. It could be vanity. It could be anything that is opposed to God That iniquity is a condition. So you've got one word translated iniquity is an action. And all of us, it doesn't take long to think back of wickedness and wrong deeds and iniquity that we committed. And then we have iniquity that is a condition. So when we go down through here in verse 4, 
It says, For no one calls for justice, nor does any plead for truth. They trust in empty words and speak lies. They conceive evil and bring forth iniquity. That word iniquity implies a condition. That translation is a condition. And in Psalm 66, you know the Scripture says, If we regard iniquity in our heart, the Lord won't hear us. That translation implies a condition. But then, in verse 2, when it says, But your iniquities have separated you from God, that word translation is action. That is something that we did. Our iniquities. Something that we did. And in Psalms 51, when David is praying after being caught with Bathsheba, he says, Wash me thoroughly of my iniquity. That word iniquity is obviously the iniquity translated from an action. But here's where I'm headed to with all this. You may need your running shoes on this one. Turn over two chapters to Isaiah 53. Keeping in mind our iniquities. In Isaiah 53 verse 4. Listen to this folks. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. And that word iniquities was our actions. That was the actions. The translation iniquity there deals with all of the wrong and the dirty and the terrible and the ugly and the wickedness that we did. That is what we did. And it says, He was bruised for our iniquity. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. And by his stripes... We were healed. And to be healed is to be completely made right. Amen? And I wanted us to think about that because I read that and I was really blessed. Because all that I had done, everything I have done, he took that on the cross. He took the actions, my iniquity, and he bore it. And it's removed as far as east from the west to be remembered no more. Amen? Amen. And when I think about that, and I I think about in the New Testament, how that we had the Scripture that says, Whom much is forgiven, loveth much. That's a true statement. But what does that do for the rest of us that are the second generation? We've done a lot of bad, don't get me wrong. But our parents talk like they were a bunch of convicts. So... In comparison, do we sit back and say, do we not love much? I want to encourage you. With knowledge of salvation, you can love much. Because the more you understand and the more you look at it and the more you dig into it and you see personally that word, that scripture, that whole chapter in context, applies to me and I was delivered when I was completely helpless from sin and the effects of sin I'm telling you you can love much I don't want everybody to consider that when we when we think about iniquity think about the love and the mercy and the long suffering let's get back to our story or we're going to be we're going to be late
we already are. Okay, chapter 7. All right, so we go now we're down to 14. It said, and he talks about in the morning how he brought out the tribes. And it's interesting how it says, and it shall be that the tribe that the Lord takes. Because I asked myself and I looked every which way. I could not find information about how this process worked. I mean, how do you assemble a bunch of people and do you draw straws? Anyhow, it says the one that the Lord takes. And if anybody in here knows the answer to that, see me after church because I want to know. The one that the Lord takes according to the families. And it went on down the line as we, as we read through there. And comes all the way down. And it falls on Achan and he says, My son, I beg you, give glory to the Lord and make confession to him and tell him what you've done, not hide it from me. And I think about as sin is exposed, and it will be because it exists, and it exists among us from time to time. It will be exposed. I think it's important for us to consider our response because I I would like to see that we would all be really desiring restoration. It's a lot easier just to avoid sin and to avoid a person that has obviously some real difficulties. They show that all the time with their action. But I'm going to tell you, they're worth whatever effort we can put. They're a soul. And I want us to consider the fact that we should be praying for and really believing for and hoping for restoration when there's sin exposed. Because we are all tempted equally. And we're all brothers and sisters in the Lord. And as we talk about it, we can't gossip about it. We can't just talk about it. And we can't conceal it. Because to conceal it is to create an environment for it to grow. And if this had been concealed, how many more defeats would the Israelites had to have suffered? And how many more defeats possibly will we have to suffer if we conceal it? If we keep it hidden in our tent? There's no value to it. There's no value to it. In Galatians 1, it talks about you see a brother over overtaken in a fault you who are spiritual restore such a one considering yourself lest you too be tempted in verse 20 so Achan answered Joshua and said indeed I have sinned against the Lord God of Israel and this is what I've done and he confesses and as he confesses his sin I want us to think about because nobody wants to confess nobody wants to confess what they've done but, you know, God wants to see us delivered as well. And he places people in our life that we can talk to and we trust. It doesn't necessarily have to be leadership of the church. It can be someone that God has placed in your path, someone that is spiritually strong, someone that you can talk to and you can confess. Because I tell you, the, the strength in confession is accountability. Because if I'm hiding something and you don't know it, I can continue to sin, and you won't know it. When you see me, you won't ask me, how you doing? Well, no. They won't do it because you don't know it. Let me read a scripture to you quickly. It says in James 5, in verse 16, Confess your trespasses to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. 
To repent is to forsake. We have to be able to repent and to confess at any cost, if that means being accountable, because I'm not naive to think there's not some serious struggles going on even here with sin. And when there is sin in the camp, it affects not only you, but it can affect all of us. If you're serious about forsaking it, then you need to consider being accountable. Be accountable. If you've tried this many times, how do I deal with this sin? But you've dealt with it on your own. I'm going to tell you, you're not alone. We've all been in the same position. I'm going to tell you one of the most important things I have found in my personal life, trying to live a life free of sin, is to know that every time sin is present, the devil is there. And every time you recognize a temptation, you have to recognize the powers of darkness. And when I've done that myself, I realize this is an ambush. The devil is present. He is involved in this this going on right now. And then all of a sudden, it becomes more of a, a battle rather than just, oh, I don't know, it's just a, a weakness, I guess. No, it's a battle. It's a battle for your soul. And sin lies at the door all the time. And I want us to remember that there is a devil behind every bit of those temptations. And he is right there, and his desire is for you. So as we go through here and we, we, we talk about verses 20 through 26, it's, it's basically just the judgment of Achan where they took him out, him, his family, his possessions, the gold, the silver, and everything. And he, uh, they took him out and stoned him with stones and burned them. Now, it doesn't say whether or not the family was involved in this hiding of these possessions. It doesn't say. I know in that culture, the head of the family, he was the one responsible for his entire family. And it doesn't say whether or not they were involved or not, but they paid a price. And that's something to think about. The seriousness that God takes upon sin in removing the accursed thing. Because we, start, we want to remove sin in our life, but we want to do it the least amount of trouble possible. We want to just, just slowly maybe wean ourselves off of this. We want this to be a gradual thing. And the same God that we serve today, He took drastic measures when it came to sin, and He destroyed them all, every bit of it. And that was the only way for there to be restoration was to be extreme. You have to be able to take extreme measures in our battle against sin in our life. We have to be able to do that. We have to be extreme. If it's a problem with whatever it is in your life, I'm not even going to throw anything out there because that excludes a lot of people and pinpoints certain people. All of this is a general statement. The object, the accursed thing hidden in your tent tonight there has to be a seriousness and an extremeness to get rid of it. We have to so that times of refreshing can come. There has to be that done to be repentance. So as we've read this story, as we come to a close, 
I know that there's a lot of, of, of people that may say, you know, that's a good story. But I just don't really know where that really applies to us today and tomorrow as we live our life. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, I want us to think about the bridge between that story of old and our lives today. Starting in verse 1, it says, Moreover, brethren, I do not want you to be unaware that all of our fathers were under the cloud and passed through the sea. All were baptized into Moses, into the cloud and in the sea. All ate the same spiritual food. They drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. But with most of them, God was not well pleased, for their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. But these things came for our examples to the intent that we should not lust after evil things as they also lusted. Do not become idolaters as some of them. As it was written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose to play. Nor let us commit sexual immorality as some of them did, and in one day 23,000 fell. Nor let us tempt Christ as some of them also tempted and were destroyed by serpents. Nor complain, as some of them also complained, and they were destroyed by the destroyer. And verse 11 says, Now all these things happened to them as examples. And they were written for our admonition, which means instruction, upon whom the ends of the ages have come. Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you except is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted above which you are able, but with the temptation will also make a way of escape that you and I will be able to bear it. Amen? So as you consider the bridge of the old to today, 1 Corinthians 10 does that. It connects it. It explains why. It explains why all these things were written for our learning and for our instruction. And if I could read another over in Romans quickly in verse in chapter 6, as we consider ourselves as we go out of here tonight, chapter 6 and verse 12 says, Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal bodies, that you should obey it in its lust. And do not present your members as instruments of unrighteousness to sin, but present yourselves to God as being alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. For sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under the law, but under grace. What then? Shall we sin because we are not under the law, but under grace? Certainly not. But you do not know that to whom you present yourself slaves to obey, you are that one's slaves whom you obey, whether it is sin leading to death or is obedience leading to righteousness. But God be thanked that though while you were slaves of sin, yet you obeyed from the heart the form of doctrine to which you were delivered. And having been set free from sin, you became slaves to righteousness. We're all going to live by choices. Every day, we're going to live by choices. We always have and we always will. That's the facts of our life as we pass through this world. We're going to live by choices. The Bible says, be not deceived. 
God is not mocked. Whatever you sow, you're going to reap. And as I stand here tonight, I want to see us reap joy and blessing and deliverance because sin was defeated at the cross. Sin was defeated. We do not have to let sin reign and be dominant in our mortal bodies. We do not have to. We have the promises that he will enable us a way of escape. Sin is not to dominate our lives and to continue year after year for us to struggle with the same old sin. Folks, that is a devil. And that's a defeated life. Pray and repent that times of refreshing can come. And if we search our hearts and see if there's any wickedness in us and remove the sin in the camp. Amen? Let's pray. Father, it's only by your grace and your mercy that we can live in this life with the victory. I ask God that your favor and your grace be upon every person here. And I ask for supernatural strength to be able to defeat the work of the devil and sin in our lives. I ask you, God, that you would give us a sharp and clear conviction that you would remind us clearly as we go out of here and live our lives right and wrong. Help us to understand your way. Thank you for your word. Thank you for being with us tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. All right, stand to your feet. We have any uh, anything else? Julie. Anybody else? Mama. Mm. All right. Let's pray. God, we agree together as a church and ask for protection for the members here that are traveling. Ask that the blood of Jesus would cover us you keep a hedge of protection around them and bring them home safe. The devil would have no right and no way to affect in any way their journey. We thank you, God, for it. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Anything else? All right, turn and greet someone, shake their hand, and tell them to check their tent. You're free to go. All right.